1: And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the
0: speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take
1: your business further at t now. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
2: From Pushkin Industries,
0: this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Today on Deep Background, we continue our special mini-series looking at global power, the institutions of power, the people who deploy it, and what it means for the United States in the world. To discuss these issues, I can hardly think of a person more extraordinary than Fareed Zakaria. Fareed is known as one of the leading foreign policy intellectuals, not only in the United States, but in the world. Not only that, he explains foreign policy to the world as the host of CNN's Fareed Zakaria GPS and the author of a regular column for The Washington Post. Before that, he was a columnist for Newsweek, the editor of Newsweek International, an editor-at-large of Time, and the editor of Foreign Affairs. He's written several important and influential books on foreign policy and the US. And today, he's agreed to talk about the major challenges that face U.S. foreign policy in the time of the Biden administration, how the U.S. government can and should think about its relationship with China, whether the world is becoming a bipolar place with the U.S. and China on either side, and how power has been transformed over the last several decades. He's also agreed to look a little bit into the crystal ball of prediction and try to figure out how the post-COVID era is going to affect foreign policy. Today, we will go deep and go behind the thinking that led to the arguments in that book. Fareed, thank you so much for joining me. Fareed, I wanna start by asking you to do a job that you've been asked to do many times over the year, which is to imagine yourself as the foreign policy czar of the United States, And in the old days, we would have said Secretary of State or National Security Advisor, but today it's not entirely clear where the true power lies. And to think about what are the major foreign policy challenges that are facing the U.S. right now, that are facing the Biden administration. And then we'll work our way through that to the question of how American power is faring at this particular juncture. So let me start by asking it to you in the most open ended way possible. What strike you as the largest issues?
2: Oh, well, thanks, Noah. It's a huge pleasure to be on with you. I'm a fan of the podcast. I think that one way to think about this is to say what is the sort of central challenge that the United States faces beyond everything else? You know, what's the organizing principle? And I would argue it is the, the United States has created over the last 70 years. A rather remarkable international system, a system quite different from one that existed previously at any point in history, that is marked by a greater degree of international order, norms, rules, even liberal values. It's not perfect by any stretch. There's lots of violations. The U.S. violates it a lot of times. But if you just think in big historical terms, the big shift that's taken place since 1945 is this one. And, you know, for example, the annexation of territory by using force is something that used to happen routinely for hundreds and hundreds of years before that. It barely ever happens uh, anymore the russian occupation and invasion of crimea is a rare example to the contrary so if you say to yourself some sometimes people call this a kind of liberal international order rules-based international order that is the central achievement of american foreign policy it is the defining feature of the world we live in right a world in which france and germany went to war three times between 1850 and 1950 it's now unthinkable that France and Germany would go to war. So if that is the central achievement of American foreign policy, I would say it is also uniquely threatened these days. It had a good run during the Cold War. It was kind of a half system, then flourished after the the fall of the Soviet Union, and now is really threatened. And it's threatened by a number of things. And I would say the central challenge for the United States is how do you stabilize, shore up, the, this liberal world order and help to make it endure into the 21st century
0: that's beautifully stated and it leads us immediately to one of the most visible challenges to this order and that's china in part of the time that you described the cold war time the u.s was in a bipolar world where the u.s powers on one side and the soviet power largely on the other then in the post-cold war period some people talked about the world being unipolar Dominated by the United States. Now, the rise of China makes bipolarity extremely probable. And in your fantastic book, 10 Lessons for a Post Pandemic World, you have a whole section talking about bipolarity and how, uh, while war is not inevitable between the United States and China, some bipolarity is. How should the US be thinking about China when it comes to incorporation into this international system of norms? and orders because just to deepen the question for for about a decade and a half foreign policy experts said well what the u.s should do is just give china the incentives to enter into this order and then it will play alongside the united states and it will actually strengthen the order and sometimes in some areas china appeared to be doing that the world trade organization being a prominent example but now it looks as though china is going to behave a little bit more like the us does embrace the order when it's useful and then step outside the order when that is
1: useful.
2: Yeah, you you make a very important point that I think we often forget, that, that the U.S. often violates this order. I mean, if you look at, for example, even on something like trade, where the U.S. has been the great promoter of free trade over the years, over the decades, we violate free trade principles all the time. By the way, all the tariffs against China and the tariffs against Europe are essentially a violation of the spirit of free trade. Many of them invoke entirely bogus national security arguments. We face a national security threat from Germany and Canada, and therefore have tariffs on their on their steel and aluminum product. But let let me get to your central uh, point, which is which is of course the most important one. So, I, what I try to explain in the book is that most people are going to think, wait, we're not really in a bipolar world. The U.S. is by far the most powerful country, which is true. But really, when you think about systems of international relations, the defining feature of a, of polarity, of you know whether you're in a multipolar or unipolar or bipolar system, is mostly uh, are the two powers in a bipolar system kind of in a league of their own. This is what Hans Morgenthau came up with in the late 40s, where he accurately Figured out that we were entering a bipolar world, even though the Soviet Union, by the way, was at that point probably one third as large as the United States in terms of its global economic impact. The U.S. was roughly forty percent of the world economy. The Soviets were maybe ten or twelve percent of the world economy. So, so if you look at it in those terms, Morgenthau's point was: yeah, the US, Soviet Union might be only twelve percent, but it's way more than anybody else. You know, in other words, there's the U.S., there's the Soviet Union. And then Britain, which had collapsed, uh, was down to something like three and a half percent of world GDP. This time around, it's clear the U.S. is number one, but China is number two and larger than numbers three, four, and five, uh, and six put together, larger than the next four countries put together in economic terms and in defense spending. So clearly, these two countries have a kind of weight and heft and reach beyond almost anything and China, unlike the Soviet Union, really is an advanced economy in many senses. Obviously, not on its averages, but to give you an example: there are 500 uh, supercomputers in the world, or the 500 fastest computers in the world, can be distributed thusly. Two hundred, about 225 are in China, about 125 are in the uh, U.S., and then the rest are, you know, Europe, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, Singapore, places like that. So you see that in some very cutting-edge areas, China is actually ahead of the United States. Overall, no question. The U.S. is number one by far, but China is a legitimate number two. So that's why I say bipolarity is inevitable. There is inevitably going to be a sense of rivalry, competition uh, between these two countries. There is a structural reality where each is going to think that its loss comes at the other's gain and vice versa. But I don't think it's like the, the Cold War, for reasons you alluded to. The Soviet Union was an ideological, an economic, a political challenge to not just the United States, but to the entire world order the United States had, had constructed. China is not quite that kind of player. It, it has readily embraced large parts of that order, not just the trading regime, but the knowledge regime, if you will. I mean, the China sends its students to the United States. It abides by patent laws, you know, there's all kinds of areas where it is trying to mirror many of the rules, regulations, and norms that have been put in place, then there are many areas where it violates. And patent is actually a good example where they they violate and follow at the same time, similarly uh, with trade. But if you think of the Soviets who actively argued that their goal was a communist world revolution and that funded parties around the world To do that, funded insurgent movements around the world to do that. Mao's China did that. It was funding at least a dozen insurgencies around the world. The the Chinese Communist Party today is strikingly about not kind of world revolution and insurrections and, and things like that, but making China great. In doing that, they are violating a lot of the rules, norms, and values of a liberal international order. So the challenge with China is, I don't think that you face the same kind of Soviet-like Cold War threat, but you face a country that is determined to rise and to really cheat in order to rise. And again, to be clear, it doesn't cheat all the time, but when it when it cheats, it is violating that, that order. I would argue that's why you have to have strong measures of deterrence where you really push back, but then also strong measures of integration where you say to the chinese if you are playing by the rules we will allow you for example to have a larger say in the world bank or the imf those examples are interesting because basically what happened uh, over the last 10 years is the chinese tried to do that to say we'd like to integrate we'd like to be you know we'd like to be more in- involved we'd like to pay more of the bills we'd like to bear more of the burdens on peacekeeping on un operations but we'd like more of a say and with something like the World Bank or, you know, or the Asian Development Bank, the U.S. largely said, no, you can't have more influence. And so the Chinese went off and said, OK, fine, we'll start our own bank, the, uh, the Asian Infrastructure Bank. And you know, that's the tension. We, 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 one of the ways I think about this is to say, we all seem to, in the in the United States, be sure we understand when China is overstepping its boundaries, its it exerting too much power and influence, South China Sea or uh, bullying Australia. But we haven't figured out what would be an okay level of power and influence for the second richest country in the world to have. It's not going to be what China's role and influence was when it was 1% of GDP, which was only 20 years ago. It's now 15% of GDP. So that's a 15-fold rise in China's raw economic power surely there's going to be some increase in its influence. And we haven't figured out how do we allow for that. That's what I mean, that kind of force of integration, which will then give much more force, it seems to me, and credibility to the pushback, to the deterrence, to say, no, these are red lines and you're crossing them. But for there to be red lines, it seems to me there also have to be green lines.
0: I love the paradigm that you're offering of deterrence and integration. And I think you couldn't be more correct that if your only stance is deterrence, then there's no positive incentive for integration. But I want to ask in practice what that means for good old-fashioned hard power, you know, geopolitical power over other countries. Because, you know, there have been voices, quiet voices for a long time, but louder in recent years, saying that, when it comes to that kind of power, the U.S. should squarely be in a model of containment towards China. That basically every extra move that China gets more powerful in militarily comes at the expense of the U.S. because the U.S. has been the dominant global superpower and China is rising. And often that view went alongside people saying, but when it comes to economic activity, that's where we can provide positive incentives sometimes because the positive incentives in economics are not thought to be zero-sum. So if China gets rich, that doesn't mean that the U.S. gets poorer. To an economist, at least, it's possible for everybody to get rich in a positive-sum way. But when it comes to geopolitical power, it's closer to a zero-sum. It may not be exactly a zero-sum, but it's closer to a zero-sum. And so one of the schools of thought had been hard-line on anything military, but give them green lines and encourage their participation and integrate them on anything, broadly speaking, economic. Does that seem to you like a plausible way of looking at it, or does that miss the point of how China's rise has actually operated, which is mostly through the economic vector?
2: No, I think that misses the point for a different reason, Noah, which is that if you set yourself up to say that the geopolitical space is entirely zero-sum. The problem becomes you condemn the United States to be essentially a world empire. Because what you're saying is if there are any gains, not just for China, but for any other country, anywhere in the world, that is de facto a loss of American power and influence. But does the United States want to be the dominant geopolitical player in every local conflict everywhere in the world? I mean, we're seeing the United States fatigue from having done that for 40 years, I don't know, 70, 60 years in the Middle East, right? We're seeing a certain sense in which even in places like Latin America, the United States is taking a much less forward-leaning position. If you think about, you know, John Kennedy's Latin American policy, which was basically the United States was going to fund the foreign aid and development throughout Latin America. We're not quite in that mode. Do we want to be in that mode? And if we don't want to be in the mode, it gets back to the sort of central architecture we've been talking about. Is there a way to conceive of a world order in which the United States is not maintaining the geopolitical balance in every local area so as to keep the world in, in some kind of equipoise? Or are we willing to accept a certain amount of Messiness, regional balances, things like that. Look what's happened as the United States has withdrawn from the Middle East. Basically, you have a power struggle going on between the Saudis, the Iranians, the Turks, the Israelis. But you know, it hasn't led the United States to say, "Oh my God, this is unacceptable. We need to be dominating." It's, in fact, I think, for many Americans, even American strategists. There's a sense of relief, you know it, we were never even clear what we were doing, and we weren't clear what our interests were. We were making huge expenditures and commitments without being sure we were getting much in return for it. So I think that's in some ways the central problem. There is the reality that economics is more win-win than security. But you know one thing that uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who is my hero. Understood about the the, you know creating a world order, which Woodrow Wilson didn't. He he admired Wilson greatly, Roosevelt did. But he understood you have to marry kind of power and idealism. You have to give the great powers a reason to be engaged in the international system. And so there has to be something in it for the other big powers in the world. They have to, I hate to put it this way, but you know, they have to have some degree of Influence. It, it's not spheres of control, really. But if you're saying nobody gets to have real power and influence other than the United States, then you know it's very difficult to imagine a world order that that is that runs on any other principle than U.S. as world hegemon.
0: Here is where the rubber, I think, really meets the road. You're absolutely right that the public sentiment in the United States if you ask people in polls, is not that the United States should be an empire that dominates decision-making everywhere in the world. And Donald Trump's foreign policy, if you can call it a foreign policy, followed that, call it intuition, public intuition. And you know, Trump regularly responded to problems in various regions by saying, I don't care, not my problem. We're gonna you know, back away from this situation. The Biden administration comes in full of young, smart people who don't see the world that way at all. Many of them are products of Hillary Clinton's time in the State Department, which in turn reflected to some degree Bill Clinton's foreign policy vision in which people talked about the United States as the indispensable nation, which is a kind of egomaniacal formulation in a certain way, but which does capture this post-Cold War idea that the United States would intervene wherever it was possible to do so, to try to maintain something like the international order. Now, I don't think anyone disputes at this point that we overplayed our hand very badly with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And with respect to the Middle East, I think you're right that there's a tendency to say, let's not get involved in that anymore. And yet, when the Israelis and the Palestinians find themselves leaving aside the rights and the wrongs and the who started it's killing each other, It's the United States that gets the call still. And that's partly because Israel is a U.S. ally, but it's also partly because there's no other actor who can plausibly go in and sit the sides down and say, okay, there's going to be a ceasefire now. And I'm wondering whether, as you look at the Biden administration's approach, they should just be saying something more Trumpy. They should just be saying, no, we're not gonna do that anymore. It sounded a bit like you were saying that, that the U.S. should sort of say to regional powers you know, step up. You take some responsibility here. You want it anyway. So we'll just sort of give it to you. And I wonder if that's, I mean, I don't have the sense that a lot of Biden's foreign policy advisors think that way, but perhaps they should think that way.
2: You, you know, you're right about Trump, but what I think you are neglecting to, uh, to say is Obama in many ways for, had very similar instincts on this limited issue as Trump did, particularly in the Middle East. The central drama of Barack Obama's presidency in in the Middle East was his refusal to intervene in Syria, despite, frankly, a majority of his aides wanting him to do so. I happen to think Obama was dead right that if you had had a, a major U.S. intervention in Syria, it is very difficult for me to see how it would either not, either would be completely feckless and you would be just prolonging uh, a civil war and actually increasing the casualties without doing having much impact, or you'd go in in a big way, and it would be Iraq all over again. I mean, you had basically an almost identical situation, a minority government that was being pushed, uh, you know, with lots of Islamists there, and the U.S. was being told, get rid of the minority government in this case, an Alawite government, in the Iraqi case, a Sunni government, and we would have seen a, a much bigger civil war and we would own it. And Obama was, I think, very conscious of that danger and you know, had this kind of Hippocratic view, which is let's first not do any harm. But I think you're right. Some Many of his advisors are more in the Hillary Clinton mode, which is more of a kind of reflexive American imperial mode. What I would say to you is, look not so much at the Arab-Israeli issue, where the U.S. has unique equities because, as you say, of the very close relationship with Israel, but also of the sense for, on the Palestinian side, certainly of a certain generation of Palestinians, that the U.S. is trying to broker something and, and is actually trying in it, in its own way to create a two-state solution. Look at the the rest of the Middle East. I don't think Biden is getting much involved uh, as far as I can tell. I mean, Syria, they, You know, as I say, many of those Biden advisors criticized Obama for staying out of Syria. They're, they're staying out of Syria. So I think everywhere you're seeing more of an approach that tries to recognize that the U.S. does not have to be dominating and shaping every one of these balances. It's not just the American people. I think it's the reality that You know, I wrote a book about the post-American world, and the central point was that these other countries have become quite strong and powerful. You know, you can't push them around. To my mind, Turkey is in some ways the the, the best example of that. 25 years ago, Turkey was a basket case economy run by generals, and every time the United States would tell the Turks to jump, they would ask how high. Uh, Today, Turkey, I think the GDP has gone up fivefold since then. It is a mature political system. It is a democracy of sorts, an imperfect democracy. Its leader is quite popular. He has a very different attitude, right? And and I don't think it's just Erdogan. I think any Turkish leader at this point that, who was democratically elected, who had the, the weight of the Turkish economy behind him, is going to be much less willing to simply act as America's stalwart ally. Turkey has very complicated interests in that area, and so it pursues them... Correctly or incorrectly. And I think that's, you know, that to me feels like the new world we're in. Look at India, look at Brazil, look at Indonesia. These places are not going to be pushed around in quite the same way. So the US has, I think, real power, and that is agenda setting power. And it has real power when it wants to. What I would like to see is an America that played more of that agenda setting role, which it uniquely has. And I think that's for all kinds of reasons, a so combination of hard and soft power. But it's only the U.S. that can push forward some big idea on the international stage, whether it's climate change, whether it's even something like this global tax regime that Janet Yellen has just managed to do. It It is striking that the U.S. has this power. It should be using it to do stuff like that, you know, to shore up the international system, to make it work, make everybody feel like, their equities are being taken into account and not to go off in one more military intervention here or there, which often tears at this fabric rather than builds it.
0: One of the fascinating sections of your 10 Lessons book was about the question of decline. And you quoted the late great political scientist, Samuel Huntington, always controversial, but also always saying something that made everybody think on the idea of there being moments of declinism in U.S. history. And his moments when he was writing were mostly moments of the late 60s through the middle 70s. And you note that we might be in another moment of declinism. Huntington, as you point out, used this phrase to say, we're not really declining. People just think we're declining. You're more measured in the book. And you say, look, this might be a moment of declinism without actual decline, or it may actually be a moment of decline. I'm wondering how that plays into the picture that you were describing because the one difference between now and those other times is that there really is another power namely china that is in a position to share a substantial part of the power that the u.s has had now that existed during the the soviet period of course but over time it, it dwindled and one of the reasons the u.s didn't decline is that the soviet union declined faster and then disappeared this time around china is not in a moment of decline it's in a moment of rise and so I'm wondering if you think that relative to China, we are inevitably somewhat declining and that that's a reason to push this kind of legacy issue that you're describing, the international order, which, after all, was created in part because it was good for the U.S., and which now maybe is still good for the U.S. as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating question. So where I find myself coming out is when you, you look at America, you cannot help but notice it's, it's a very complicated country. And the answer to your question is going to be necessarily complicated. There are areas where the United States is incredibly inventive and dominates the world like, frankly, no other country ever has. Think about big tech, if you went back to the 1970s and said, what country dominates the world of technology? It would have been a complicated question because the Germans you know, still were doing very well. The Dutch in you know, areas like the Philips and consumer electronics were doing very well. Today, the big technology companies in the world are all, all American or Chinese, but the American ones, I think, are still have a, have a lead. And that reality is you know, one that does not seem likely to go away anytime soon. On the other hand, in terms of you know the quality of life for average Americans, median wages, social mobility, uh, all kinds of metrics like child mortality, uh, the United States does way worse than most European countries. Certainly worse than all Northern European countries, and increasingly worse than places like Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea. So, it, you know how to conjure up an America that uh, that conveys that full picture, difficult. But that's why I rest my argument here less on where America is in terms of how well it's doing, more in terms of how the rest of the world is doing. I think it's fair to say that whatever you may think of how America is doing, uh, Singapore is doing ten times better than it was twenty five years ago, and south korea and and Indonesia and India and Chile are all you know leaps and bounds further ahead than they were and Of course, the number one country in that regard is China, as I say, one percent of global GDP twenty years ago fifteen percent now almost inevitably rising to twenty percent in the next five to seven years. I would say you know seven years would be a reasonable number, and in that sense in relative terms it it would be astonishing if the united states did not decline a little not a lot i mean the the truth is the us has stayed roughly constant for the last 20 or 30 years it's been sort of between 20 and 25% of world economy the chinese have gone up largely at europe's expense the the country that has the countries that have declined in those terms. But the U.S. has also declined a bit. I mean, it was closer to 25. It's now closer to 20. It's likely, I think it'll go down to 18, something like that. So I do think that there is a reality here. And the the larger reality is also one of political confidence, of cultural pride of a sense, you know, one of the things that I've always been struck by is the degree to which American culture, which used to dominate the world completely, just does not anymore. When you go to, I mean, if you go to China, there it's essentially unknown. I mean, there are five American rock singers, rock stars who are known, and then everything else is Chinese. But even those, you know, Britney Spears or Beyonce or Jay-Z, whoever you have, these are like number 40 in China. But that's increasingly true everywhere. South Korean television shows, Dominate East Asia much more than American television shows do, so that may be one kind of soft indication of what I'm describing. But I really do think that it's this rise of the rest that that is the dominating force here, not so much the decline of America. But to put it in terms that you were asking quite rightly, it does mean a certain kind of relative decline, even if the raw numbers show a small decline. There's a a similar moment in, in many of these countries, I think.
1: We'll be right back. I've interviewed many
2: successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.
1: It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job. And we have to find out. Who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth?
0: I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows. And I often thought about calling, because I was like, this is
1: this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, and if you want to hear the entire season right now ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcasts show page, or on pushkin.fm slash plus.
0: Fareed, I want to ask you a question that I hear frequently from what I would call the critical left that looks at international order, looks at liberal internationalism, and says that when it works, it just benefits global elites, that it facilitates trade and facilitates great accumulations of wealth. And yes, if you push people, they will say, yes, it's very nice that so many Chinese people came out of poverty, but they say that happened at the expense of the loss of middle-class jobs in the United States. And so one of the lines of criticism of the liberal international order is that it hasn't actually served the interests of ordinary Americans, of middle-class and working-class Americans, and that therefore, in that approach, continued adherence to it with ideas that you and I tend to like, like free trade countries, you know, participating in an international order for intellectual property and so forth, is actually not in the long-term interests of ordinary Americans, that we need something different, perhaps a little bit more populist, less globalist, less focused on the idea of trade, and a little bit less worried about the fact that we can, through this model, enable poor people in other places in the world to get richer, more concerned about taking care of ourselves.
2: So first, I think it is worth noting the irony of a movement of people whose, whose central claim is that they are most concerned about human poverty, essentially being against a process that has taken the poorest of the poor, the, the, you know, the people living on $1 a day, and moved them up you know, it's easy to regard this as an abstraction. I grew up in India. When you went into my father was a politician. Much of his constituency was rural. When you go into rural India, even today, but 25 years ago, I mean, there are people living there in in, in medieval poverty. And so the idea that that this is something to be scoffed at or to be taken lightly, you know, this is extraordinary. 500 million people moved from that kind of poverty into a more decent circumstance, you know, three, $4 a day. And which I will not- say
0: the right-wing populists have no, don't have that worry about hypocrisy. I agree that a left-wing <laughs> exactly. populist has to deal with that. But if you're a Trump supporter, you can <laughs> skip over that part.
2: Right, you don't care. But but I think it's weird that Bernie Sanders, you know, the, the man yes. of the you know, workers in, of the world unite, doesn't seem to notice this extraordinary benefit that trade and globalization has produced for hundreds and hundreds of millions of in- incredibly poor people all over the world. It is true. I will I will not pretend that there is no connection between globalization and what has happened to middle class wages in in the Western world and in the United States in particular. It is not the whole story, as you well know. A large part of it, when economists do the math, a large part of that story is manufacturing uh, has become automated. If you look at America's manufacturing output, it has gone up and up and up over the last twenty years it 's just with fewer and fewer and fewer workers. Yep. So when people keep saying we 're going to bring back manufacturing to the United States, you can bring it back all you want. What you're bringing back is highly automated plants where very few workers work, and where the people who work are essentially advanced software engineers you know kind of running the plant so there, there is that problem, but globalization plays some part in it there 's no question, and China plays a large part in that in that story. I have always felt about this the way I I do about domestic economics. And again, I grew up in India, a socialist economy. And so maybe I'm colored by that experience of watching a dysfunctional, decaying, stagnant, corrupt system. There's no question that the market provides much greater efficiency, much greater vitality, allows for innovation, allows for the generation of growth. There's also no question that markets need to be regulated. And some of their profits need to be taken and redistributed to provide greater opportunities for people. I think the biggest mistake we've made with regard to trade over the last 50 years is that we keep saying that, oh, yes, you know, we know there are winners and losers in trade, uh, and we need to make sure that we help the losers adjust, and, they, and then we never do it. There's never any money spent. It seems to me this is obviously the right answer, which is you keep the motor that generates the the dynamism and the wealth and the innovation, but you use the, the proceeds, the rewards to really try to bolster e- economic opportunity to really help people move up. Places like Denmark, Sweden do this very well, even Germany, which is why they have not had as much of a decline of their manufacturing sectors or as much of a decline of their jobs. So it seems to me The answer is not to go in a Trumpian populist direction, but in a more social democratic European direction. Social democracy properly understood. Northern Europe is very free market. In fact, in the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom, Denmark and Sweden rank higher than the United States because they're more free trade They actually don't have that much regulation, but they take that money and they spend it on the poor, on economic opportunity That seems to me the answer.
0: When a country is economically powerful, that does have a tendency, not universally, but to create more economic opportunity and therefore more opportunity for well being for ordinary citizens, especially if they do the kind of Nordic redistribution that you're describing. What about geopolitical power? Is there any real reason to believe in this day and age that a country's capacity to exert its will globally? necessarily serves the interests of ordinary citizens. You know, Trump seemed to think that it just didn't matter to ordinary Americans if the United States could exert its will globally because it wouldn't translate into jobs and it wouldn't translate into anything that would affect their pocketbook and wouldn't translate into their daily well-being. And in contrast, a lot of liberal internationalists, myself included, tend to assume that there are benefits to all Americans knowing that let's say, our values can be expressed globally, that international institutions that we help design to serve our own interests are out there and are functioning in the world. But I'm not sure that we've necessarily done a very good job of translating that into concrete terms for ordinary people.
2: Yeah, the Trump argument is sort of, I don't see cash coming into my pocket by doing this, so obviously the whole thing is a scam. And therefore, what we should just do is, you know, and Trump would literally say this, even no matter how illogical it was. We should just, you know, charge the Chinese for this, or charge the Saudis to uh, to defend them, uh, or you know, things like that. Uh, the truth is, I think there's a much stronger case to be made that the kind of world that the United States has created is profoundly in in the interest of an ordinary American. First of all, it produces peace. It produces stability. It produces more general prosperity, a more general adherence to rules and norms, all of which is great if you are a rich, powerful country that you know already has lots of things, uh that you don't want war, you don't want revolution, you don't want massive chaos all over the world. And and as you say, there is a certain benefit that we get from having regular open trade by having, you know, democratic societies around the world observe the rule of law, observe human rights, because we're the the ones who are most more likely than not to interact, to travel, to trade. I think that the sort of central challenge we face that's more substantive, and this goes back to you know where we started, is can we build a liberal international order in which we also adhere to the rules more? You know, there's a certain tension here where we tend to think we're the guys organizing the whole system, so we can be we, we can be expected to live by these rules. So when we criticize China, for excessive involvement in the South China Sea, in violation of the Law of the Seas Treaty, nobody points out the U.S. is not itself a signatory to the Law of the Seas Treaty. When we talk about war crimes again, you know, and we accuse dictators of war crimes, what we are implying is that they are going to be taken to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. And we don't point out, we are not a signatory to the International Criminal Court. You know, when we talk about these tariffs or these unfair trade practices that chi- the Chinese have on. Uh, a couple of good accounts have tallied up the number of protectionist measures enacted by any uh, country, and the U.S. is off the charts. We're number one by far. So it seems to me our challenge is, can we find a way to also adhere to these rules and norms more? Because that is going to be a more compelling argument as to why the Chinese need to do it as well. You put it very correctly, uh, Noah, at the start of the show. You said the Chinese really are not trying to be the Soviet Union in 1960. What they're trying to be is the United States in 1995 or 2005 and say, we're big enough now that, yeah, mostly we'll follow the rules. But whenever we feel like we don't want to follow the rules, we're big enough that we don't need to. And Exhibit A is the United States of America. I want to
0: close, Fareed, with a challenge that is enormous to everybody and also important to everybody and that can't be solved without very sophisticated deployment of global power, and that's climate. Pretty much every country in the world now is prepared to say that we need to reduce emissions in order to maintain the global temperature. But the collective action problem remains just so difficult to overcome. How do you think about the right approach to that? How should the Biden administration be thinking about what it can realistically do? Because this is one of those cases where the ideals are shared. The problem is in the practical realities of getting people to overcome their own impulses to develop their economies.
2: So it's the perfect example of why I think we should not go down a path of a Cold War with China, because, uh, you know, you would have the two most powerful economies in the world, that would be engaged in a ceaseless competition. And the central danger, the central cost, it seems to me, is that we will not be able to cooperate on issues where we need to cooperate. And the the number one there is climate. You know, if you really do believe that climate is the existential challenge that we need to face up to, you can't do it without the United States and China in some measure of cooperation. This is a problem that actually hard power is very poorly designed to solve because the United States is not going to be able to force countries to do things that are not in its self-interest, right? If you look at a country like India that is essentially building a coal-fired power plant almost every couple of weeks still, what is going to make India stop doing that is two things. One, there has to be some economic logic that makes sense for India, some kind of financing structure which allows it to buy slightly more expensive energy. And the second is a a regime of global norms and values and rules which say this is really not okay. And you would pay a, a certain price even if it's an intangible price, even if it's a kind of normative price. So you'd need those two things to happen. And for both of those things to happen, you need the United States and China on the same side to generate those norms, to generate the financing, because otherwise what's going to happen is the Chinese will provide financing for dirty energy, which is what a lot of the Belt and Road Initiative is. We will provide financing for clean energy. Again, this will all get caught up in the maw of competition. So it feels to me like there's no way to do this without some substantial degree of co- cooperation between the United States and China. Europe is already on board. So when you add that all up, you're talking about 65-70% of the world economy. But there's it seems to me that there's a larger issue which is you know, is there a way for us to find these kind of areas of common opportunity and to say to ourselves, look there is a reality of common humanity. Are there ways we can try to solve these common, you know, these common challenges? It's. It has always been America's historical legacy that we have been able to do this. I, I. I. Maybe it's because I'm an immigrant. I do think one of the distinctive features about America is we think about our national interests like every other country in the world, but we also think about broader global interests, and we try to expend some power and some resources in doing that. So if you're going to say that's important, then it's. You know, it's crucial that we not end up with a foreign policy that is solely defined around a kind of nationalist competition against another country, no matter what country, because that's, that has never been the American way. The American way has been to try to create a better world, not simply to keep one country down, no matter how problematic that country is.
0: Freed, I want to thank you for your very, very cogent and sophisticated analysis. That's tremendously valuable to all of us who try to think about these issues. Thank you so much.
2: No, this was a huge pleasure. Thank you
0: listening to farid's fascinating analysis really brought home the depth to which a foreign policy thinker like farid has to go in order to produce the analysis and the suggestions that go into much of his public commentary behind farid's analysis lies a complex worldview that sees a combination of foreign policy realism and foreign policy idealism as components of how the United States approaches power and politics. In an important sense, Fareed is a globalist. He cares a lot about how people all over the world are conducting their lives and are trying to improve them. He credits China with extraordinary efforts to raise people out of poverty, even as he is concerned about the lack of freedoms that China extends to its own citizens, and the ways in which its Belt and Road initiative limit and constrain the freedom of countries with which it interacts. Fareed does believe that we are headed for a greater degree of bipolar struggle between the U.S. and China than we have seen until now. Yet, simultaneously, he argues that while struggle between the two may be inevitable, genuine conflict may be controlled and constrained. He sees the United States as playing a central role in the continuing international legal order, and he hopes that the United States can, at the level of its grandest strategy, still seek to constrain and limit China and bring it into that order, requiring it to the extent possible to follow the rules of the game in order to be a constructive partner for the United States. Overall, Fareed's analysis remains optimistic, about the capacities and possibilities of the United States to continue to lead in a range of different ways, even as it acknowledges the rise of China and seeks to recognize a shifting set of global power actors that go beyond just the handful of traditional ones in the United States and in Western Europe. The picture that emerged from our conversation is of a world getting more complex by the minute. A world in which no country can think that it has all of the answers to the core problems of the future, and in which, above all on issues like climate, the world must work together, or all countries are going to reap the whirlwind. I'm grateful that Fareed agreed to go deep into his worldview, and I learned a tremendous amount from listening to him. Until the next time, I speak to all of you. Be well, think deep thoughts, and have a little fun. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Toliday And our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to bloomberg.com podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background.
1: It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out, who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um,
0: the Unsolved Mystery shows and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is is not right. How can a person get killed and
1: no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, and if you want to hear the entire season right now ad-free... Subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm
2: slash plus.